This episode of Behind the Bots is brought to you by Fingertech Robotics, North America's top manufacturer of combat robotics parts. If you're interested in building your first combat robot, check out Fingertech's Viper Kit, which includes everything you need to build a fully functional, competitive ant weight. Fingertech also carries a complete line of wheels, hubs, motors, and other components if you want to build a bot from the ground up. Check them out online at www.fingertechrobotics.com. living rooms as we practice social distancing this is behind the bots the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind battle bots i'm chris i'm luke i'm Lindsay, and i'm kyle and today on the podcast our interview with chomp captain zoe stevenson and teammate yasha little we'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of robots around the world if you like our show please rate and review us on apple Podcasts, google play Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player, FM, and Podbean. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BehindTheBots, or check out our website at www.BehindTheBots.com. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have eight news items for you today. First up, we travel to Central Texas, where Texas Twister Captain Fuzzy Malden is trying to kill a family of feral pigs on his ranch. For the past two weeks, Fuzzy has been documenting his long and swinding journey to capture and kill these wild hogs. It's clear he's done his ham work, setting up infrared cameras around a bait trap for the pigs, which he shoots with an AR-15 rifle that's outfitted with a silencer. Sadly, no bacon for the Maldens, who simply bury the pigs after killing them. Uh, Chris... I really think you should just let me stick to the puns. <laughs> okay, Chris, Chris, I had to Google pig puns as I was writing this up. I stole these puns from somebody else, okay? That's probably the saddest part about this entire segment. Um, you know, other than, you know, pigs being killed. Um, I know that this uh, this has sparked some debate between the four of us. I'm going to try and keep this tight. Uh, Chris, thoughts on, uh, you know... BattleBots, beloved BattleBots builder Fuzzy Malden, uh, killing pigs uh, in, in his in his backyard. Yeah, I mean this 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 weird subject about pork has me pulled in a few different directions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on uh, on one hand, I I I understand, you know, as a rancher that he has to deal with this, and yeah, so he's got a farm or whatever, and you know, we do have a feral pig problem in the United States. Uh, with which is strange to me, given the just the sheer amount of McRibs that this country can consume in one in one month go whenever McDonald's pulls the starting uh, pistol. But you know, uh, yeah, the guy he invented a search engine. Does he really need to to like document the annihilation of pigs on his on his fake farm? Who knows? Apparently so. Uh, Kyle, Lindsay, thoughts. So Texas, just so everybody's aware, has in excess of 1.5 million uh, wild hogs. They've got one of the worst problems with wild hogs in the entire country. Um, I have no problem with him, you know, managing that population on his property. He's he's doing a service to his local community by doing so. Um, 
the documentation of it's a little weird. Yeah, I'll say that. It's a little strange. I, I mean, you know, it seems like he's just kind of documenting what should be normal ranch work. Um, and, you know, most people don't document their jobs that much. So it's weird. How about you, Lindsay? Um, you know, any, uh, you know, I understand hunting for food. Anyone who takes like pleasure in killing a mother and her babies, whether it's, you know, hogs or, or what is, is weird to me, frankly, but I will say if, you know, it is a problem and it sounds like it is, um, then it sounds like 1.5 million wild hogs is a great source of free food uh, and would go a long way to helping people eat during what is now an economically challenging time. So just throwing them in a ditch is, you know, maybe the worst part of it all. So I don't know, not a fan, weirds me out, not, not great in my book. Fair and balanced, and we kept it nice and tight. I was worried we were going to talk about this for like ten or fifteen minutes. Uh, we could, but, uh, we could keep going, Luke. Yeah, I would. I really wouldn't want to chop this thing short. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Only thing I want to add is before we get too into the bacon puns, you can't actually get much bacon off of wild hogs. They do not have a big enough rump for it. Okay, <laughs> you can eat a wild hog though. Okay. All right. You can. They're uh, great for pork, pork roast, pulled pork. You can make, you know, like lots of delicious dishes out of them, um, especially with slow cooking methods. You do have to cook the crap out of them, though, because of trichinosis. Um, but, yeah, you can eat them. They're, and they're delicious. Like wild, wild hog is absolutely delicious. But, um, you know, it's a lot of meat to process. It's a lot to deal with. And uh, I can totally understand not wanting to take the time to haul all that around and not, and not get it processed, especially when it's an abundant resource where they're at in Texas. I suppose if I had millions of dollars, I might want to eat it for uh, the good of the community and, you know, donate it perhaps, but point taken. Fair enough. On over to Ontario, Canada, where metal worker and rookie combat robotics builder Ty Little made quite a splash this week, showing off an immaculate little beetle weight called Cybershock, which is inspired by Will Bales and Hypershock. Cybershock looks amazing. Uh, when you see it, it looks like somebody shrunk Hypershock down into a three pound size, which is difficult enough to do, but still like captured the essence of it. Um, I love this so much. Um, I reached out to Ty. He says that he's planning to bring it to the next season of Bugglebots if and when the next season gets announced. He's been documenting his journey over on his Facebook page, Team Splode Combat Robotics. Um, I got some additional details about Cybershock. So, uh, Will, if you're listening, uh, Cybershock is entirely brushless with dual quarter-inch vertical blades and a quarter-inch thick aluminum chassis. And if Cybershock is any indication of his abilities, I'd be really surprised if we didn't see a lot more of Ty at a future season of BattleBots, um, possibly captaining his own team or uh, somebody recruit him, maybe one of the Canadian teams. If you uh, haven't done so already, head over to Team Splode's Facebook page and uh, give it a follow. Lindsay, I know that you were obsessed with Cybershock. So cute. Thoughts on this tiny little beetle weight? Yeah, as soon as I saw it on Facebook, I think I screenshotted it and sent it to our chat because I was just so taken by how cute it was. Uh, but it's also, I think, a really smart move on, on Ty's part because... I mean, the best way to appeal appeal to Sarah and to Bugglebots is by making a miniature version of something that they absolutely love to meme 
you know, the world out of. And so that, what a great, uh, you know, way to get a, a, a surefire shot at Bugglebots than appealing to their deep uh, sense of a meme love for Hypershock. Good job there, Ty. I have a question. The, yes. Now, when you say a little beetle weight, do you mean a small beetle weight or just a beetle weight that was built by Ty Little? <laughs> <laughs> The four of us are in the news this week after signing up to moderate two live virtual panels with BattleBots builders next month at Maker Fair Miami. Panel number one will be held on Friday, August 14th at 5 p.m. Eastern with Paul Ventimiglia, Andrea Galately, Ray Billings, and Stephen Martin, the captains of last year's top four, Bite Force, Witch Doctor, Tombstone, and Death Roll. Panel number two will be held Saturday, August 15th at 7 p.m. Eastern with female captains Andrea Galately, Sarah Malian, Jen Herkenroder, Julia Chernashevich, and Lilith Specht. We'll officially announce both panels later this week, so watch Facebook for more details. Uh, we are trying desperately to uh, confirm death roll, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess we'll have to see. Uh, look, look for our post later this week to see if uh, Stephen is going to be joining us. On over to the Bay Area, where Team Scorpios is launching quite possibly the hottest team swag of the season, team-branded face masks. Unclear how much they'll cost or how to get them, but watch the Scorpios Facebook page for more information. An update now to a story we brought you last week. Tantrum Captain Aaron Hill posted video this week of his flamethrower fist, which, as we saw, will double as the heavyweight's self-writer, it looks like they'll also be called the Flaming Fists of Fury. On over to Team Valkyrie, which this week revealed their bot's frame rails, which were made using generative design and cut by their sponsors at Datron Dynamics. The team inscribed, quote, in memory of Grant Imahara on the side of one of the rails as a tribute to the late BattleBots builder who died last week at the age of 49. Kyle, I know that you were really impressed with these generative design frame rails. Uh, thoughts on uh, this year's Valkyrie? I mean, what's not to be impressed with Valkyrie? Every single bot they've built has been just gorgeous, beautiful, cohesive design, um, powerful weapon, you know, that perfect mix of effective and beautiful. And I love the idea of these generative frame rails. It's so smart. It's a great way to make their bot as structurally sound as possible, as well as save weight. Um, and I think it's so sweet that they decided to honor Grant, um, you know, inside their bot, which is exactly where Grant would want to be. That's where he would want to dig into first, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, this is a good story. This is like the perfect battle bot story as far as I'm concerned. Well said. In related news, BattleBot says that they are, quote, strongly considering renaming the best design award that they give out each year to the Grant Imahara Excellence in Engineering Award. Pretty cool. Looking forward to that. And finally, Nelly the Ellibot Captain Sarah Malian continues to land on the right side of history this week, appearing at a protest in support of the transgender community, writing, quote, Team Punchant continues to stand up for trans rights, this time in Bristol, to oppose the proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act in the UK, which will have horrible impacts on the lives of trans people. We met a few bot fans too. At the protest, Sarah wore a hand-painted t-shirt that read, Ally for Life, I'll go with you, and rejected by your parents, I'll be your mum. And that's it for this week's news. After the break, our interview with Zoe Stevenson and Yasha Little.
This week on the podcast, we have two very special guests, Zoe Stevenson and Yasha Little. Zoe and Yasha are mechanical engineers at Applied Invention, an engineering firm that works on some really innovative projects. The most interesting, perhaps, is the 10,000-year clock, a mechanical object being built deep inside a mountain in Texas that's designed to survive and accurately tell time until the year 12,000 and probably beyond. BattleBots fans know Zoe and Yasha for Chomp, the only heavyweight in modern BattleBots to defeat three-time giant nut winner Bite Force. They're returning to the competition this season with a super heavyweight walker version of Chomp, the first walker since the original run of the show. We're really looking forward to exploring all of these topics in the hour ahead. So welcome to the show, Zoe and Yasha. Thank you. Nice to be here. We Thank are you. so stoked to, uh, to have you here. Um, getting you on the show has been one of our goals since the very beginning. When we sat down and decided we were going to start a podcast, Chomp was like at the very top. And uh, I feel like oh, wow. we had to kind of um, build up some street cred before we could uh, <laughs> even reach out. So um, having you on is, is really a, a great pleasure and, and an honor for us. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. We're really flattered too. So, yeah. Um, because we have two of you, and because um, I'm terrible at introductions, I was hoping maybe Zoe, uh, you could introduce Yasha, and Yasha that you could uh, introduce Zoe. So, uh, Zoe, do, do you want to start off and tell us who Yasha is? And uh, sure. What? what uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Yasha. So, full disclosure, uh, I'm married to Yasha, and I think he's the cat's meow. Uh, but Yasha Little is a mechanical engineer who has had a whole wide range of jobs um, from like Jaguar mechanic to semiconductor uh, fabrication industry um, engineer and uh, for the last many years has worked as a prototyping engineer at Applied Invention. Um, if you're excited about the 10,000 year clock, you're in luck because he is the lead engineer of that project. He has touched every single assembly uh, and designed designed many of the, the most important uh, pieces of that clock. So he's the person you wanna talk to. And um, between the two of us, Yash and I do most of the mechanical design for uh, our robot chomp. Amazing. And Yasha, could you, uh, could you introduce your, uh, your wife, Zoe? Absolutely. Uh, Zoe Stevenson is my absolutely wonderful wife and uh, partner on, on our uh, BattleBots team. She uh, is uh, younger than me, so I, I did BattleBots uh, back in the day, in the early Comedy Central days, and um, she heard me and some of the other fellows that used to do it at, at Applied Invention talking about it, and she has provided the motivation for this new iteration of BattleBots building, which is great. Um, uh, she's the captain behind Chomp and uh, provides a lot of the motivation. Although in the last year or so, we've had a lot of trouble getting things done since we are also starting a family. And I'm here to tell you that a uh, one-year-old child is not conducive to your combat robot building dreams. It's true. It's <laughs> true. Um, well, congratulations. I, I think that that's fantastic. Um, I, I'd like to talk about something else, like kind of wondrous that you're working on. Um, so uh, the 10,000 year clock, this is, um, this is a project that I've been interested in ever since I read about it. And it was, it was actually the impetus for us to start this show because we were looking into the, the backgrounds of, of the captains and we got to Xander Rose. I think we were going alphabetically. So, you know, we've got to B and um, for Bronco and looking at it and the clock was just, 
so cool. Uh, like it's, it's an art project. It's a, um, it's like a statement about humanity. It's a massive engineering challenge. Um, and kind of our thesis was all of the builders are interesting and, and cool. Um, and oh, that's very flattering of you. Thank it's, you. It's been, uh, like we haven't been proven wrong yet. So like every single person we've talked to is really cool, but like, we're super stoked to talk about this clock. Um, I wanted to, to start off by reading an excerpt of the official description of the clock to kind of like, I don't know, get us hyped, um, and then ask you about it. So, uh, this is from, from the website. The clock is in the mount. The clock that is in the mountain will be monumental almost architectural in scale. It will be roughly 200 feet tall, located under a remote limestone mountain near Van Horn, Texas. It will require a day's hike to reach its interior gears. Just reaching the entrance tunnel situated 1,500 feet above the high scrub desert will leave some visitors out of breath, nicked by thorns, and wondering what they got themselves into. Um, love the description. It's amazing. Um, mm. I guess, first off, can you describe the clock for somebody who hasn't seen the prototype? Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge, right? Yeah. So do you want, do you want me to go or do you want to do it? You go and then I'll chime in. Yeah. The, yeah. The clock is, is absolutely, uh, enormous. It's, um, the full mechanism is probably 600 vertical feet. Um, there are some gaps in there. It's not 600 feet of solid stuff, but visiting the clock involves about 600 feet of vertical, uh, climbing and seeing clock components um so and a lot of that's actually a, installed yeah ima imagine a vertical bore in the mountain it's it's like 12 or 13 feet in diameter and there's a spiral staircase cut up around the bore and so this this it's this long vertical clock um installed uh, inside that vertical bore it sounds to me like a project <clears throat> of this size is what really makes you tick oh, my God. <laughs> oh man he was waiting for that one <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's so actually, I mean, the project really has become a big part of my engineering career. Uh, I could, I could introduce the, the story of how it all got started for me if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Uh, hopefully you'll have Xander on sometime so he can fill in the gaps. But basically I was, uh, an engineer working in my hometown of Austin, Texas, uh, almost 15 years ago and Xander, Xander, who I knew through BattleBots contacted me and said, you know, you should, uh, you know, we're, I work for the Long Now Foundation and we're trying to get this, this 10,000 year clock built and we're kind of working on funding for it. And uh, we're having this company down in LA run by Danny Hillis uh, work on some of the engineering, just the initial engineering. He's like, you should move out there. They'll totally hire you. And I, I said, I don't want to go to LA. Screw that. Um, but uh, eventually I got coaxed into, into, into doing that largely because of the shop we can use at, at, the, at the company. But anyway, I moved out there and started working on some of the early iterations of clock stuff, just doing science, uh, cycle testing and building little prototypes and mechanisms and thinking the whole time, like, this is never going to be like a, a real whole clock. Like, it's too expensive. And then eventually the clock project got full funding. And, um, you know, over a decade later, we're still working on it and it's becoming very real. We're actually putting parts in the mountain, spent many, many weeks out north of Van Horn in the middle of nowhere on those uh, rocky trails that they talked about in the description, getting thorns and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, it's become a big part of my engineering career. I, I love the clock because it forces us to think 
much more long-term than we think about today. You know, um, today we know that in 20 years from now, uh, the world is going to be very different. Technology is going to be very different. Like our kids are going to grow up in a really different kind of generation than we are in. Um, but when you start to think of t about time in terms of like a thousand years or 2000 years or 10,000 years, you know, like to the year 12,000, like you really kind of think further out, like your horizon is, is much further. Um, you know, like, can you, can you talk about some of the engineering challenges of designing something that's supposed to outlast the pyramids, you know, like what, what, what are, what are some of the, um, the, the kind of technical challenges that, that you had to work through? I think, I mean, corrosion is one of the biggest ones, uh, you know, you need to make it out of affordable materials and uh, that kind of limits you to, to metals for a lot of structures and you don't want those things to rust away. So, uh, corrosion resistance is a big one. And then you get into subtler problems when you want uh, things to survive, you know, 10 million, 100 million, 1 billion cycles of wear. And and then you look at the materials you've uh, narrowed it down to that can tolerate the corrosion and you realize, oh man, wear resistance and corrosion resistance are kind of diametrically opposed in metals. So uh, basically not, the, the metals that you would use uh, are very frictiony when you when you have a sliding surface like you might in two years between each other um, and you have to make it out of corrosion resistant materials you get a lot of friction which is the opposite of what you want in a gearbox and you don't have uh, lubrication is not really you know we, we kind of decided there is no 10,000 year lubrication solution you know there's no oil that'll last that long or grease that'll last that long or oil pump that'll last that long and there's no electro there's there's no electronics in the clock there's no there's no pumps there's no motors it's all it's all mechanical systems um so a lot of the problems were solving corrosion wear and also how to do things without servo motors and do things without computers and do things without batteries uh a lot of looking at uh patents from hundreds of years ago because people were way better at this back in the era of you know naval chronometers and Harrison, you know, over in England, solving all these difficult timing problems with just brass. Um, There's nothing soft that will last. All your damping has to be done with, with you know, bellows, bellows full of purified water and and um, other other clever tricks to make everything out of metal or ceramic. Yeah, ceramics is a real. Uh, ceramics are much more difficult to manufacture the metals, but uh, engineering ceramics are kind of what we have gone to for the really critical wear surfaces. That's that's the, uh, they're both corrosion resistant and wear resistant. Uh, they're just, you know, miserable to manufacture. You have to use diamond tooling, et cetera. And in addition to just like choosing different materials, you know, some of the like actual, you know, pieces are different than they would be otherwise. So for instance, uh, the style of gear that you're most likely to see that you've seen a million times um, that's in production, you know, nowadays in places that, you know, can fill their gearbox full of grease or oil is the involute gear. Uh, it has a lot of manufacturing advantages. However, that gear has sliding friction in it in a way that another type of gear, which is called a cycloidal gear, which you can make with, with rolling interfaces, wouldn't have, wouldn't have sliding friction. If you can if you can take your friction from sliding, like imagine you know pushing something along the ground to, to rolling, you know you put it on wheels, your your friction goes down very dramatically orders of magnitude. So many many 
design changes um, have been made to make sure that we can use rolling friction instead of sliding friction? This is probably a dumb question, but I feel like uh, it's kind of fundamental to the project, but like, what is the purpose of the clock? Xander would definitely be the man to give the proper answer to <laughs> no, that, I, but we, we, we know what it is. It, it is to foster long-term thinking. It's to make people think about yeah. those things you mentioned earlier, like why it's such an interesting project, because people don't think on that kind of time scale. And, you know, people ought to consider whether or not we're going to be good ancestors, you know, hopefully, you know, you don't want to be the period of time that people look back at in a thousand years and wonder, good Lord, why did they ruin the whole planet? Right, that um, was it's, it's worth giving thought to. Yeah. Yeah. I think also there's just sort of an engineering reason which is which is maybe less uh, noble. I don't know, maybe it's not. We can do this. It's a really hard problem, but we can we can probably do this. And we've in a lot of ways stopped trying to do stop trying to solve really hard problems that aren't like selling ads on social media. We're really good at that. Okay, we devote a lot of resources to that. But we've we don't have that many projects that are like building a cathedral. Like, what's the most beautiful building that we can build, even if it will, if it will take, you know, hundreds of people working on it, and it will it will, you know, take a lot of resources. Let's just try and do this thing that's really hard. We probably can build a machine that will last for ten thousand years. And how cool would it be to have done that as humans? Like, let's try and do this really hard thing for the sake of doing the hard thing. Right, right. I think it's interesting because, you know, just given the nature of consumerism and products in this day and age, things are built to last for, like, you have to throw out your phone every two years. You have to throw out right. your television. It stops working after every four years. And to just like say no to that and build something that is going to last so far beyond our lifetimes, it's hard for a lot of people to even really fathom how long that is. It's such a it's such a cool and unique project. Thank you. Um, I I was looking at um, at the team roster working on the clock, some of the engineers, and it's so interesting that uh, there's so many BattleBots builders that are working on this clock, you know, is that a coincidence blame, or? Blame Xander, yeah. it's, it is, it's not a coincidence. It's Xander uh, looking for engineers that he knew to come work on the clock project. And uh, we sort of just collected. And then, and then I was around all these folks and they were starting BattleBots up again. And a lot of them were saying, oh, you know, I, I've got kids now or just I'm older. I don't have the disposable income. I don't have the time. I, I can't build a robot. Yasha was in the middle of another robotics competition um, and everyone was sort of talking about it. And I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I could do that. You know, if, if none of these folks that they want to have come back um, are free, then maybe they'd take me and they did. So, I imagine that outside of the clock, this is not the only cool project or thing that you, you're involved in building. Um, so outside of, of this 10,000 year clock and Chomp, what are some of your favorite engineering projects that you've been a part of? Um, it's not very, uh, it's not very different. Well, it's a little different, but before this version of BattleBots returned, I was deeply involved with the uh, NASA sample return rover challenge that was five or six years of uh, a different kind of robotics less violent more difficult um uh, fully autonomous uh 
robots that had to complete tasks without any human intervention uh, in an effort to develop uh, basically uh, planetary rovers, you know, uh, rovers that can operate on other, on other planets without human intervention for every step like they currently do for the Mars missions. And also without GPS, which I think is a big, a big uh, help. So, you know, we are at the forefront of, you know, maybe someday soon autonomous cars, but those have these big aids <clears throat> and, um, like the GPS cloud and they have maps and they can th use those tools to really help them figure out where they think that you are uh, and make sure you don't get lost. And those don't exist on the moon and Mars. Yeah, Earth's magnetic field is actually remarkably handy as well. Good static y'all reference that you lose on Mars and the moon. So that's one. I, um, it's not an engineering project, uh, but I lead a Girl Scouts troop. Aww. Uh, I guess we do, we do do like a Pinewood Derby race. So, so we do that. Um, yeah, outside of, uh, outside of the clock project and, and uh, BattleBots, there is not a lot of room for other engineering projects. I'm yeah. surprised we've, we've done anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've gotten to work, the, the company that we work at does sort of prototyping engineering. Um, a lot of it is is pretty private, so we don't want to you know talk a whole lot about it. But it is nice um, to do prototyping because you you get to experience a lot of different things and try your hand at a lot of different things and kind of get it from napkin sketch stage to the first mostly working one, and then try something new. I think this is a good segue to our next question because so much of what you know, the both of you are working on is kind of, you know, new new territory and, and how to design for something that you don't necessarily have, you know, examples to, to base it off of yet. So what do you need to be a good engineer on experimental type projects, products? People to bounce your ideas off of. <laughs> The creativity, which is not necessarily an aspect of all engineering, but uh, to do prototype work, you need more creativity than I would say other other fields of engineering. Lots of napkins. Lots of napkins. Yeah, lots of napkins. Having seen a lot of things is really helpful. So there's a conference that we try to go to um, in Chicago every two years. That's a giant manufacturing conference, and we just, you know, go through the halls and look at all the sorts of ways that people make things. And some of those we have in our shop and we've seen what they can do, but a lot of them we don't have. And just, just seeing the ways that people do stuff and getting that into your brain is important. I, yeah, definitely. And another, another thing that we do at our company that is not nearly as common in the world of engineering is we have our mechanical engineers actually make a lot of the stuff, yeah. which is part of, part of the reason why it's it's possible for us to work on such complicated robots like Chomp. Um, I think that engineers that make their own parts uh, tend to be able to prototype more effectively. Uh, they can iterate faster because they're not, they don't have to wait for an external shop to produce all their parts, which is a pretty long turnaround time. You know, for the clock, we do have a lot of shops make our parts because we don't have a, a milling machine that can do eight foot diameter parts. And you know, so you have to wait a couple months to get those parts. And uh, when you're making prototypes, it's really nice to be able to just go to the machine and have a part in a day, and uh, see if it works. And you know, 3D printing is a thing, but if you really, if you're 3D printing works sometimes, but if you're trying to test, uh, you know, mechanisms that are under any serious stress or strain, uh, nothing beats machining parts out of say aluminum. 
Or you want it to be precise or the other thing about learning to machine is you are less likely to design something that's unmakeable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really uh, a good point. And it's just interesting how many fields it sounds like within engineering, you know, come together to, to, you know, create this. Um, uh, so I guess moving on now to uh, learn a little bit more about your start in combat robotics, we would love to find out about how you came to learn about combat robotics in the first place. So we'll have different answers to that. Mine is working in this workplace that sort of because of the way that the clock got staffed was was full of BattleBots builders and sort of just being around those folks and being around a place that you know worked on robotics projects professionally um but but yasha will have a different answer yeah if i remember correctly i was i saw an advertisement for robot wars uh in wired magazine hmm. back in the 90s and uh my dad thought it sounded cool too and so he he took me out to san francisco to watch robot wars i think in 96 or so and um we thought, man, we should build robots to fight at these events for sure. <laughs> we were immediately hooked. And uh, and I, I think I, I got a really terrible one done for a, a BattleBots event in Long Beach in 99. It was such an embarrassing robot that I immediately, <laughs> immediately cut it back apart and thought, okay, time to start again. And that's when I made the judge. Uh, so, so what were the first robots that you built? I know you just kind of got into yours, but can you tell us a little bit about them? For some reason, I immediately thought hammers were a good idea. And so I tried to build a hammer for 99. I think the robot was called the Juggernaut. It was electrically powered, which is a, which is a, yeah, it was a pretty decent name. It was a terrible robot. Um, I didn't, like a lot of engineering projects, I jumped in without enough calculation, which is a, which is a thing I have a tendency to do because I like building things, but uh, calculation definitely has its place in the world of engineering. I, uh, I made an electrically powered hammer, and if you and if you really get in and look at the energetics between uh, electrical and pneumatic systems, it just becomes very clear that uh, pneumatics is the only way to go to power a hammer. Sorry, John Reed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's made a he's made the most impressive electrical hammer I think possible, but uh, you can just exceed that energy in order of magnitude at the pneumatic system quite easily. And so uh, after the juggernaut, I. And we got went back to the drawing board and started getting into pneumatics and that's why i made the judge with a pneumatically driven hammer zoe what about you my first robot that was mine was chomp i helped in a very small capacity on the the sample return robot that that yasha was talking about but he he sort of mostly had it designed by the the time that i showed up almost entirely so I'd, I'd seen a little bit of that, and then I'd been involved in a, a little bit of some robotics work at, at my, my job professionally. But my first robot that I built was the Crusher Chomp, which also was not a great robot. I have a lot of affection for that design, but it was not a good battle bot. <laughs> so, so that being your first, you know, your first major bot, um, what was it like then competing at, for the very first time, presumably, at BattleBots? Oh, it was intimidating and also sort of, um, I, I ended up a little bit bitter. <laughs> uh, 
because because when I talked on the phone to them, they said, all right, well, we'll take you, but your robot better look really cool and have like multiple modular weapons. And it can't just be like this box and it can't just be some boring spinner. I said, okay, all right, I'll build something cool and interesting. And of course, um, it got destroyed by by Ice Wave. Um, so that was that was a little a little harsh, but it was really cool to be there. It was interesting to see. You know, this is obviously a place that a sport that's been going on for a long time that has its own culture that I was just stepping into as a totally totally new um, person. And you know, it's it's good to see something that you worked on really hard, like make it at least to the point of like, okay, yeah, it did get done. Um, even if it doesn't make it in the sense of like being successful. So now that you've, you've kind of been around the block now for a while, what do you love about combat robotics so much to, to keep going? It's really fun to build something that's all your own. So most of the you know products that I work on at work are are these big group projects like so for instance the clock is a is a product that i've designed a couple of sub assemblies for but i couldn't possibly do the whole thing myself and and i also only have sort of this one piece of it but with a robot you know you get to make all of the decisions and that's intimidating but also really cool to have the whole system um in in your brain and what what do you think asha I mean, a lot of it's just like the addictive nature of competition, you know, just yeah. try and, and, and also having, I mean, in my life, I like having challenging projects and it's really hard to beat trying to build, you know, combat robots as uh, this kind of never ending challenging project. <laughs> and specifically sort of like not the easy road combat robotics, I would say we, we, we try and we try and do some Oh, I, I shouldn't say anything more. I might, I might get rude. Um, so uh, we, we have a question from Tom Brisburn who asks, given that Yasha competed with the judge back in the Comedy Central days, if we get into a hypothetical mode now, who would win in a hammer fight between the judge and Chomp? I mean, I think once you get into the world of hammers, you start really realizing how advantageous weight and size is for a hammer swinging robot. Wow. And the fact that the judge is 340 pounds and another like half a meter longer is just too big of an advantage that the judge would probably win. It also carries a lot more armor. Chomp? I don't know about new chomp. I think new chomp. Oh, against the legged chomp? Legged chomp, I think. Oh no! Yeah, like it's five hundred pounds. If you go with my previous statement of weight and size account for a lot with hammers, the, that's one of the reasons why Lego Trump is such a fun idea is because it weighs five hundred pounds. But if the question is uh, two hundred fifty pound Trump versus three hundred forty pound Judge, it's probably the Judge, and largely just because the bigger a robot is, the more it can swing the hammer in a stable and effective fashion. I know everyone loves to laugh at Trump flipping upside down, even me. Uh, but a lot of that is just because we're really shooting for the moon with the hammer energy and with a smaller, lighter robot, it just perturbs the machine due to conservation of angular momentum. There's just no, there's no getting around it. And that's you can, just been a. You can swing the hammer or swing yourself. And if you imagine <laughs> like you as a human being holding a, you know, two pound hammer in your hand, basically you only swing the hammer. 
But then if you imagine yourself as a human being holding a 100 pound hammer and trying to swing that, you'll realize that your body will, will also move in opposition. And that's, that's what assuming, assuming you're strong enough to throw it. And, and Chomp is like an exceptionally strong human being that can provide ludicrous torque on a hammer arm. If you watch old videos of uh, teams of people driving railroad spikes, it's quite impressive. Those uh, railroad spike drivers, their feet come off the ground a couple inches uh, when they swing. <laughs> I think um, I I still have to swing my body when I uh, throw a two pound hammer, so <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine when you extrapolate from there. Um, so you know, kind of getting into the earlier wheeled version of Chomp, we have a listener question from a, a young, little known builder named Will Bales. Okay, he wants to know. So how exactly do you beat Bite Force? Asking for a friend. Well, uh, in our I mean, case, we put a hammer in his weapon chain. Will could substitute that for a rake, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, I think realistically, one thing that is appealing about there, there aren't many advantages you get if you aren't building a spinner. You just can't compete with the the kinetic energy in a, in a spinning weapon. It's just they have so much time to add so much energy to that blade. So, so you're starting off at a disadvantage, but one advantage that you do have is that most people put so much of their energy and time into defending this little narrow band at the bottom of their robot. And sometimes they forget that there are robots that attack other parts. And so if you can, you know, the, the ex sort of general version of the answer to this question is build a robot that can attack some, some part of robots that people usually don't worry about. Although now that that fight has happened, people, worry more about their top armor again. Yeah, I could also give Will the old school answer, which would be um, finish your robot two months before the event and practice driving it instead of finishing your robot two hours before the first fight. But hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fired. Don't bring your batteries up. <laughs> Poor Will. Uh, yeah, time will tell if he'll, he'll finish his CAD uh, before the uh, event this year. <laughs> He's got uh, extra time now with the with the lockdown. Yeah, you would you would think, but yeah, uh, we feel his pain. We're always behind. Also, we have not finished our cat. To be fair, <laughs> and I have no cat, so I can't really talk at all. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, a lot of that's on me. I gotta get on it. <laughs> um, so Travis Arp wants to know what match has Chom taken the most damage, and how difficult is the bot to repair? That question was also seconded by Sam Waldo Waldman, who is also interested in that answer. Probably Yeti. Um, Chomp just hasn't, so so version two of Chomp, Hammer Chomp, just hasn't ever taken that much damage. Version version one of Chomp, Crusher Chomp, uh, is the Chomp that has taken the most damage, which was the fight against Ice Wave. We didn't have, um, we, we had enough weight for a little bit of titanium armor all around that robot, but the a problem with that robot it was was it was just so big, which made it very stable and drivable. But then you have this bigger perimeter that you have to armor, and we had this plan to do these overlapping titanium shell plates, except when we went to do the front corner panels, they the the bending machine that we wanted to use to bend them had a very um, sharp die on it so and and we didn't know like the direction that the sheet was in and so we tried to bend 
that panel and we just broke that piece of titanium. Ooh. And it was like a couple days before the event, like, oh my God, what do we do? So we ended up making that front corner panel out of aluminum, out of like, I don't know, 16th aluminum, something awful, right? So it was essentially tissue paper. And so I sort of got into that. And then from that opening, just proceeded to rip open the entirety of both sides of, of, uh, and, and was able to do so because, and I, I think this is a, a design decision that, that I like, all of Chomp's wheel modules um, for both of the wheeled versions of Chomp were independently powered and driven uh, and controlled. So even when one wheel module gets destroyed, all the rest of the wheels keep keep driving. So <laughs> that meant that they all sort of had to get wrecked before uh, the bot stopped moving. Yeah, the, 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 the current version of Chomp, Yeti, I think you're right. Yeti is probably the most damaging fight um, because Yeti's drum happened to be at just the right height to to cut the connection between the upper and lower armor halves. But uh, so far, so so far, we don't know exactly how hard it would be to fix a really damaged uh, wheeled chomp. Um, we tried to make it relatively easy by making the wheel modules completely swappable, but we didn't ever have to do it. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, in the Yeti fight, the armor. So first of all, we the the hammer armor thing maybe got caught, um, but then also just the armor itself um, is attached to the frame with shock isolators with these these. Um, polyurethane rubber shock isolators. And I think a bunch of those got um, like fractured or broken. So we just, we we have a water jet in our shop, which is so, which is such a great machine. And we just, we, we cut some more shock isolators. That's awesome. That's a, that's a handy thing to have around. <laughs> We're very, very lucky. One of the big perks of our job is um, they have this this revolutionary thought that hey if you're using the shop on your own materials and your own time and you're making your learning mistakes um, on your project then when it comes time for the work project you'll be better at your job and you won't make those mistakes on the on the work time that's brilliant and what a way to really lovely. people to you know work on their own things I, that's that's really a, a, a great environment yeah yeah it's a super great place to work i I feel very, very lucky. So we now have a question from a six-year-old fan sent in by Leah Nepper, who asks, how did you build your self-writing mechanism? Afterthought. <laughs> um, we crossed our fingers and thought maybe the hammer will flip us back over, but Chomp was kind of tall and awkward. So just I like those eyelets. They just would like, they'd get unbent. Um, it was actually kind of advantageous just how flippy floppy Chomp was, Chomp number two, uh, uh, Hammer Chomp was in getting up. And one fight that we had one year, we also had like controller issues. I don't know what was going on. We were like losing, we were losing radio, but we were trying to self-write with a more sort of controllable and predictable um, system that involved pistons inside of the hammer axles. And our opponent, which was Warrior Dragon, the Waiachi one that's got the sort of sounds right, yeah, semi full body spinner and semi flipper. Um, they would just like sit underneath us um, in just the right spot to make sure that we couldn't push far enough to to write ourselves because it was very predictable just what we needed to do in order to get up. And so then we actually went back to using the little eyelet um, things on the sides of the hammers. Partly because 
people kind of couldn't get in our way um, because it was it's it's hard to mentally model what happens when Chomp gets up. All right, so I would like to talk to you guys about 2020 Walker Chomp. Um, so can you please describe Walker Chomp to our listeners? So I think the first so so there's a lot of things to describe. It's sort of essentially two robots: the, the bottom, which is the movement base, and then the top, which is the weapons. But I think a big section of this just should just be devoted to Yasha talking about the legs, because <laughs> this was always an idea that Yasha's had of, of building this walking robot, and he did this, poured his heart and soul out into designing those leg modules. So Yasha, tell us all about it. Well, part of the, you know, part of doing this robot at all is just to, to do something that's difficult. Like, <laughs> we're not insane. We know if we wanted uh, to make an effective battle bot, we would just make a vertical spinner and finish it ahead of time and then practice and learn to drive it. And then that would be our best chance. Instead, we're doing something really hard that will probably fail spectacularly, but will be way more interesting. Uh, anyway, the, um, the legs, uh, the first thing I think about when I think of legs is like, they're just going to get broken in battle bots. It's just such a violent environment. You know, someone's going to flip you and you're going to land on your legs and all the, all the actuators are going to break or a spinner is going to just hit them even glancingly and it's just going to break all your actuators. And so the first question is how the heck do you make legs that uh, can survive uh, the battle box at all? And um, the answer we're trying is uh, servo pneumatics, which is not a really well-served uh, uh, engineering specialty. Um, air is compressible and um, it doesn't obey normal control laws like electrical servos do, but it has a few advantages. It's extremely power dense and you can just back drive a pneumatic actuator just brutally and it, it has no ill effect. It just compresses the air inside of it. So we're willing to face the other challenges, i.e. controllability and precision uh, presented in servo pneumatics and also just the lack of availability of um, components just to give it a try. They're also lightweight, which is, you'd think with 500 pounds, we have an infinite weight budget and we really, really, really don't. We're just like lightening every single darn thing, but but pneumatics, pneumatic cylinders are lightweight. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 both, it's power dense in both size and mass. And um, it's not very energy dense. A, a big, a giant compressed gas cylinder <laughs> will be lucky to make chomp uh, jitter around for three minutes, but hey, uh, we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot. Um, so I, I spent some time trying to learn about what was available with servo pneumatics, and um, there's only really two companies actively competing in the field: uh, Festo, the big German company, and their solution is appropriately German. It's just so complicated, and it's like three boxes per axis. And and there's also <laughs> a, a company out on the east coast, uh, Infield, uh, Infield, uh, and they make servo pneumatics. Infield Technologies, they make servo pneumatics and uh, they are our fantastic sponsor for this machine because the, the with uh, each leg is three degrees of freedom. This is kind of the what I settled on and um, there are six of them. So that's 18 axes. And uh, no matter how much the servo amp costs, that's gonna add up. And they sponsored us with, uh, with valves. And so hopefully we'll finish this thing and have a pretty good um, representation of their technology. Specifically, <clears throat> the S2 cylinder positioning system from Enfield, which we, yeah, we all, kinda... I mean, 
it, it's an all-in-one device. It's it's you know it, it is the valve and it's the controller. You you uh, you send it a signal and it listens to the feedback device and it closes the loop all internally. Um, so far, they've been pretty great. Um, and so I designed this three degree of freedom leg that you know I think is reasonably survivable and it's shock mounted into the chassis and. Uh, and then from there, we designed an absolutely enormous robot around it. Because even I felt like I was designing the legs a little small. You know, you look back at the old days, look at something beautiful like Mechadon and those big legs, and you think, well, that, that looks great. But those will totally get chopped off by a spinner. So we need legs that we can enclose in, in some kind of armor. The hoop and, skirt. Yeah. I've been wanting to do the hoop skirt for like years <laughs> and years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has a hoop of armor around it. And it just, everything weighs so much and everything is so large. Uh, it's a real challenge. And even though the legs, I think are, the legs are kind of disappointingly small, if you ask me, but uh, still the robot is just, will be the biggest robot it's probably huge. to enter I the battle the For so much time. The other thing is, so in the in the middle of it, the, the bottom robot, which is sort of the hole in, in like a tank parlance, right? You have the hole in the turret. So, so we have a hole on a turret and we have a big, big bearing between the two so that when the, the turret part throws the hammer, uh, it doesn't just snap off from the the whole part of the robot. And so laying out this robot with six legs and a giant bearing in the middle, um, it's just it's just a big robot. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to get back to the precision issues. So I um, just to give you a little bit of background on me, I do um, live event work and specifically custom scenic fabrication work. Uh, so pneumatic actuators is something that I've played with for a very long time, mm -hmm. um, just because that's how we like to get our scenery to stop in the middle of the stage and then, you know, keep rolling in the middle of the stage. Um, but one of the things that we always struggle with in my industry is that precision, that ability to like know consistently how much pressure you're going to get to your leg, how much pressure you're going to get to your pad every single time how exactly like i know you haven't had a ton of time to, to practice or experiment with that um but how much control is is this versus a wheel like are you able to really reliably turn left with it or is it kind of a yeah it turns left but we don't exactly know how much i you know the the thing has not been on all six of its legs yet we have we have seven legs completed and we have you know one of them has been our test leg for a long time and our software team has been working on the you know, inverse kinematics and all of the control tooling that, that goes around it. There's a lot of work in all that. And yeah. uh, the, the chassis has just been wired up recently uh, with all of its communications from the main computer. And um, I, I, we, might, we might be one day to two weeks away from putting the thing on the ground and having it walk. Based on the controllability of the legs, I, I would assume that it, it will, be pretty precise at turning and whatever you want it to do because the legs themselves are quite precise. The, 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 the big difference between what you're talking about and these servo pneumatic S2 positioning systems from Enfield is that they explicitly have sensor feedback and close the loop on positioning themselves to, uh, to where you have said to go to. So instead of just saying, oh, I don't know, put a pulse of air in it and see where it ends up, you know, which is which is the case with with most uh, pneumatic cylinders, they, you know, there's there's like a valve on each side, and 
the the system lets air in until you're in the right spot um, and and has a feedback system that knows okay that was it that's the right spot you know slow down um, stop right there so so we wouldn't try it if we didn't have a servoing um, um, sensed positioning system yeah yeah i think um, the fast way of saying that is it's this, this fully closed loop servo positioning right so, so similar i guess more to a hydraulic like closed loop positioning system um yes than what you would similar to, yeah and we we consider hydraulics quite a bit that might be a question for later but we definitely uh, consider no, it, hydraulics it actually was going to be my next question calvin eba from mad catter team he wants to know why you decided to use pneumatics over hydraulics for the legs I, I've had some experience doing servo hydraulics. Um, it's just a world where people are way, way less concerned with weight. There just aren't very many small servo hydraulic options out there. Everything is heavy. Also, I don't really like being covered in oil all the time. And no matter how much you tell yourself, that's not going to happen when you're working with hydraulics. That is absolutely going to happen. It's going to happen like every other day. So <laughs> the, the air is cleaner. And also the, the, the hydraulics do not give you the... Um, back drivability if you if you uh you know flip a hydraulic legged robot over and it lands on its legs all of that load uh, you know the hydraulics just are, are 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 like rigid members they're going to um transfer that load right through to the frame and uh whereas the pneumatics will compress like springs yeah that's um i'm super excited to see this work i'm i don't think i'm the only one that's thinking that but this sounds very interesting to watch um, all right, I'm excited so, to see it work too. <laughs> yeah, right. By the way, I want to say thank you for like incorporating into your design for the hoop skirt, uh, you know, visibility for the audience because I think everybody's going to want to watch those legs skittering around. Um, and I know from a structural standpoint, that's not exactly ideal. So uh, as a fan, thank you for for kind of giving us that peek into everything that's yeah. moving and working down there. We'll see. The turret will obscure some of it. The turret is sort of disappointingly giant, um, but I, I think you'll still be able to see a lot of the legs move. I hope. Yeah, we, we um, committed early on to making the legs visible, and we're glad we did. Even though you're right, it does it does kind of leave them a little exposed. But since a lot of the opponents are spinners, you can you you have a better idea about where the attacks are coming from. I um, feel really good about the hoop skirt plan. I mean, I, I, I've I've always felt really good about it for any any robot, any sort of control. But we there was an early idea of it that was just like pipe, and you just hold the pipe at the right height, like like your, you know, a big brother, with your hand on the forehead of your little sibling who's trying to punch you. Um, but but you know we we ended up with something that's more like traditional AR plate. So Matthew Cahoy wants to know what's the biggest challenge you've run into building the chomp parts so far. Wait. Do you agree? Yeah. Do you think weight? Yeah, weight. And um, with the legs, it was kind of, you know, I've done a lot of machining in my days, but doing, um, doing you know, those kind of quantities was pretty painful. Like a lot of the parts were like 30 each, you know, for things that appear on the legs four times. And it, it was a grueling like month period where all I was doing was making chips on the milling machines. <laughs> I thought it was going to kill me, but um, that, that might've been the hardest challenge was just making that many parts. And also making them light enough weight is, is just miserable uh, on this robot for sure. That's a good segue into my next listener question from Bloodsport teammate Seth Schaefer, 
who wants to know how much more weight is in the hammer this year versus 2016 chop? Oh, you have hit on a sore nerve. <laughs> uh, hopefully, is... lots more. Hopefully, a lot more. But maybe hopefully, hopefully a lot more. Yeah. So right now, I think the design is overweight by something on the order of like forty pounds, and that's with like a tissue paper armor for the the top for the turret. <sighs> Those that weight has to come out somewhere, right? And yep. So, so the answer is we'll we'll see. We would really like it to be a much heavier hammer. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to aim for twenty five pounds, which would be like four times as heavy as original Chomps hammer. All right, um, all right. So we have a question from Pori Nog, who asks, "Can we see the new Chomp?" There's a little winky face emoji that comes after that. Uh, but really, I'd love to hear more about the tracking technology that you're incorporating into Walking Chomp. The tracking technology will be the honestly will be likely this year at least the same um, lidar lidar that we've used in the past. Um, so it's it's a, a 16 beam um, uh, sort of segmented view out of the world and uh, gives distance returns and will try and aim at the thing that's the right size to be a robot and that's moving towards us. We've talked about trying to be more sophisticated than that but our software team has so much to do just getting the legs working that i i don't think that that will be much of an improvement from last year yeah i think the the, the significant improvement will be that last year the 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 lidar targeting system was, was the software team did a great job on that but trying to steer a skid steer robot uh, is a really tricky controls problem. You're transitioning between a couple of different regimes of, uh, of control where it's, you know, static friction to kinetic friction, and it's kind of miserable. Uh, on this chomp, we have a turret. The hammer is up on a turret, which is kind of an insane idea, but it's a much easier thing to control than a skid steer robot. So um, similar autonomous pointing, but just an easier control, control system, a turret motor. That makes sense. Um, all right, so we have a thought-provoking question from Hijinx Captain Jen Herkenroder, who okay. asks, when, when designing for motion on a walker, where does the inspiration come from? Do you look at natural locomotion, like insects or other animals, or is it more mathematically modeled? Natural locomotion, for sure, although, you know, there is a lot of research in uh, legged gates, uh, fault from two legs or actually from one leg to six legs for sure um and we have uh we've looked at a lot of that but there there is a very simple gate which is very popular with six-legged robots and that's the statically balanced tripod gate where you're always using three legs to keep uh those three points of contact over your center of gravity um it's not the fastest of the gates but it's also the first one to try and we're, we're trying we're going for simple first that's what's our main inspiration is simple for the first iteration <laughs> of walking gate if anyone is interested all of our code is public it's on <clears throat> github.com slash contradict slash stomp so you can go there and check it out that's fantastic um thank you for sharing that with us mm -hmm. uh, so we have an engineering suggestion from, ah, beta captain, right. <laughs> from beta captain john reed who writes silly idea 
using sensors to lift the legs individually to avoid incoming horizontal spinners. So if Chomp, Chomp's effective diameter is larger than that of the opponent's blade. It's a fantastic idea. That's a <laughs> lovely <laughs> idea. Thank you. We considered even <laughs> making a legged robot based on that idea with long legs that had fast vertical actuation. Oh, yeah. I remember, remember? that design. <laughs> yeah. I'd forgotten about that. Wow. Yeah. yeah like they're really tall, like way taller than anything else. You could just stand over it. Yeah. I forgot that. Yeah. And just lift the legs that were in danger. Um, it seemed easier to us to, uh, since the battle box is a nice flat floor, it seemed easier uh, for us just to uh, walk with the armor skirt almost at the ground and uh, do it the dumb old fashioned way. The other not thing the is we're British not going to, we aren't going to compete on speed with any of these moving robots. So in order to be, I mean, the nice thing about say a horizontal spinner is it kind of doesn't matter which direction you're facing so much. You can always hit. And with a hammer, that's absolutely not true. There's a single point that you can hit. So deciding to do both, we we need a way that we can have an agile hammer if we're ever going to be able to hit anything. So it may very yeah. well be the case that we spend a lot of the fight sort of planted and tracking with, with the hammer when the opponent is kind of close, um, but uh, but not close enough to hit quite yet. Interesting. That's going to be such a different dynamic than like what we've seen in modern BattleBots so far. Um, all right. Yeah, we're, kind of, so, we're, exci we're excited about having a turret. It's a very, it, it's a, it's, uh, you're right. It's a really different dynamic than trying to point a really to a robot. It's going to be them, so yeah. different to compete against that. You know, you, you really, it's all about positioning now as far as driving skill goes. And, and that's going to be completely null and void when fighting you guys. Hopefully, yeah. We are, we thought originally about putting the turret in the belly so that the whole robot would spin and like you know all the legs would spin and stuff. And then we decided that that was um, that that was too hard. We also had a version where the legs themselves were armored. Um, it kind of looked like a like a hermit crab, but it was like these big coconut shields. crab. Is coconut, the, crab coconut crab is the choice for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like shields on each leg, but no. I think I think the hoop skirt's the way to go. Hoop skirt's the way to go. You know, uh, I can't help but think about um, the Strand beasts. Like when you guys are descri uh, describing the pneumatic actuation, did that have any kind of kind of input into your design thought process? No, I, and I love those things. But they are they they're they're very clever. You know, all mechanical systems and the legs are very. I, I think we have pictures of the legs on our site so people can see them. They're very simple, three degree of freedom. You know, <laughs> like straightforward designed to look kind of cool, hopefully, fingers crossed, and um, be robust, you know, not beautiful and elegant like the Strong Beasts. Yeah, they, um, you're right, the, the Strong Beasts have that like golden ratio with the way their legs kind of like flow and rotate through through their axis. Um, but I think that the the kind of skittering effect for what you guys are doing is gonna make your, your tight turns and your tight movements a little bit more effective than what you would get from the Strong Beasts for sure. Yeah, hopefully we skitter pretty we'll fast. We'll see. I'm just, I'm really scared because I know that the underside of the battle box is hollow and I just cannot imagine the noise, you know, you're going to make when you're going across this brand new steel floor with these uh, just thump thumping legs. I, you're sticking with metal as far as the base goes or are you going to add like a rubber to the bottom of that? What's, what's the thought process there? I think we thought... For for our own floors for testing, we'll probably put a little rubber 
foot on there. We might end up with just like a hard point for the battle box. I think that right now we've just got a tap hole in the end. So we can experiment with, with different different sort of foot ends. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be just a crazy noise for people in that arena. Well, anybody who can be in that arena, I guess. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I wonder right, how loud so, it would be. I don't know. I'd imagine it's I mean, just because, just based on my experience, like, with 30-pound robots and shuffle drives, I can only imagine that, like, what you guys are going to generate sound-wise is going to be very loud. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be gentler. It's hard to say. It depends on uh, – I think it depends a lot on how we profile the legs. But you're right. If we drive the legs – now that I think Real about hard. it – If we drive the legs into contact with the ground basically as fast as those pneumatics can go, it could be real loud. Those pneumatics are fast. We've thought a lot about what cool dances could we make Chomp do just in addition to, you know, actual fighting. Have we have we had time to actually work on those dances? No. But there are a lot of possibilities. <laughs> okay. Uh, I really hope that we get, like, post-season video of Chomp dancing. Um, oh, yeah. If you're not able to make it happen by, by the time the, the filming happens, then, uh, yeah, I look forward to that YouTube content. <laughs> All right. Um, all right. So we have a question from Annie McGee who writes, which type of spinner will the new bot be able to handle better, vertical or horizontal? I think pretty similarly, probably both. Yeah, we kind of designed the hoop skirt to handle them both similarly. Um, <laughs> they're both, it's it, for both of them, it's just a, you know, fingers crossed, hope it doesn't cut through the AR. Um, we feel like bent AR is a, well a real secret. Old. Yeah. 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 A lot of, uh, if you look at most failures under spinner attack uh, on AR frames, it's almost always where they're welded. And we've committed, we, uh, you know, Zoe's uh, father and friends up in, um, up in Seattle have worked diligently on making an AR 500 bending setup. Shout uh, out to Hazard Factory, Rusty, Neil, Neil, anyone, anyone who's worked on the crate. Thank you. Yeah, the Hazard Factory is great. It's a it's a welding teaching shop up in um, Seattle, and they've they've been home to our uh, totally custom uh, AR five hundred bending brake that we made out of a thirty ton press. And um, if, once you see Chomp's hoop skirt, you'll see it's not it's not very round. It, it approximates roundness with uh, with eight sides. You know, an octagon is almost a circle, right? Um, right. But, <laughs> but they just do a few bends and. Uh, I think having bent corners is a lot more resistant to being opened up by a spinner than, um, than oh, so corners. much. Oh, so, so much more. That's really impressive. Uh, yeah, I love the Hazard Factory content on YouTube. Oh, good. Uh, we've, yeah, we watch we watch the crate videos and some of the other Hazard Factory videos and kind of nerd out about it. Um, you know, during the week. I should say uh, uh, the the crate for anyone who doesn't know is an acronym for Combat Robotics Armor Testing and Closure which uh, the sort of Seattle branch, we call it the, the, it the Duwamish branch after a river, uh, it's nearby, built to simulate Tombstone. And they feed various armor ideas into the, the tomb clone blade to see how that armor does. You, the the tomb clone usually life. wins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just like real life. Yeah, um, yeah. 
So we have a question from Texas Twister teammate, Tony Woodward. That was a lot more alliteration than I was expecting to come out of that sentence. <laughs> um, so how, how do you move a 500-pound bot? Like, have you put any thought into how you're going to transport it, how you're going to get it in and out of the arena? You know, the logistical things that you always think about the week you're actually supposed to load into the show. We do have lifting eyes um, in each of the armor supports that, that go out to the hoop skirt, and those are the, the turret will clear those. Have we figured out how we're going to lift it? Not exactly. Um, yeah, this, we have given it a lot of thought, but no solutions have really been uh, implemented. Um, there's, there's some outdoor pallet jack or pallet movers that could be modified to uh, attach to those eyes and would be great. Now uh, we just need to find some motivated people to get one and start cutting it Design up. It et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Engineering. Yeah. Yeah. We have a shortage of engineering time. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I imagine so. Um, I'm excited to see what you come up with. I'm really hoping you just build a whole other robot, you know, like the, like the Tombstone fellows do. That has been contemplated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could just take that uh, outdoor pallet mover and roboticize it. But uh, in, in reality, my, my bet is it's going to be four of the team members with big oh, poles Lord. that go through lifting chains, and we're going to just pick it up and grab it. Oh, Lord. Lot. Hey, we're strong. I hope not. Well, I'm I'm pregnant, so I don't want to be on the lifting team. Yeah, so it has. <laughs> I, I thought that that didn't matter to like, the third trimester. Well, maybe. That'll be my excuse. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a fair excuse. <laughs> Um, all right, so Sam Waldo Waldman asks, when can we expect more reveals and testing? Just show me something getting destroyed already. <laughs> I, I agree with this sentiment. Great question. Um, things have slowed, so, so to be totally like level with everyone, things have slowed down a lot during, during, um, during COVID. So for, for a long time, we had our darling one-year-old daughter uh, at home with us and my god that has made me admire stay-at-home parents even even more it's 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 so much uh and so we we really were not getting a lot done um during that phase her child care her, her daycare has reopened uh and she has just amazing um daycare and a couple other kids um in her class and that has been a real blessing for us professionally and, and also a blessing for us um, in terms of um, being able to actually work on chomp again instead of sort of frantically trying to get our day job work done um, here and there where, where we could so we're sort of starting back up again um, we hope soon we hope we'll have cool stuff for you soon all right, I have uh, I have some more listener questions. They are mostly about the French colonial empire, so I hope you guys studied up. Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, I've got this. The uh, the French foreign legation is uh, right next to my aunt's house in Austin. I'm fully studied up on this. This this is great. All right, the first the first question is a ten part question. Ready? <laughs> all right, no, but uh, for real, we have a we have a question from Tom Brisbane who asks, bite force aside. Whose spinning weapon, chain, or drive would you love to take out the most? Ice wave, maybe? 
Yeah, because I, as we have tore first chomp up uh, so much, we, we we may have some fantasies about putting the hammer through uh, Ice Wave's uh, engine. But, you know. It's such a good hammer target, too. Yeah, it's just up there. Like a big, soft, aluminum, you know, engine blocks that's waiting to be smashed. Yeah. yeah we have flamethrowers. It'd be good. Yeah, with, with maybe an explosion to just as a chaser. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, I have a question here from Shatter Captain Adam Wrigley, who wants to know, what's the best weapon type, and why is it hammers? <laughs> it's hammers, Adam, but more specifically, it's pneumatic hammers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I love, yeah, I love all hammers, but I just, I always gotta wonder, like, what the end game is if you're not if you're not going pneumatics. I mean, so. There are a lot of spinners in the world. Spinners are very effective. I understand why people build them. I think it's interesting to build something that sort of... See, here I'm going to say something that's not very politically correct, and we'll all be in trouble. That requires, I don't know, more... More? I, I don't know. Going. I hear where you're going. You <laughs> I think it's I think it's interesting to try something that's not the same design that everybody else has that's also the simplest design of just a couple motors for wheels or four motors for wheels and one motor for the the drum and a clutch and boom done. And and Chomp has always every version of Chomp has always been very complicated and that's obviously in some ways hurts it but I also think I wouldn't want to it's it's the the type of robot that I would want to build is always going to be a more complicated robot that that tries to do things in a clever way. Um, yeah. All right. I have a question from Nelly the Ellibot Captain Sarah Malian. Great. Asks. All right. Picture the scene. It's the finale, and it's Nelly versus Chump. Okay. The bonk, the bonk off to end all bonk offs. The fight goes the distance, and it's left to the hands of an all-male judging panel. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Three Brian Nave clones. Oh, God. Oh, I love Sarah. Sarah I keep asks, going. Three, three Sarah, Brian Nave judges. Got it. Sarah asks, which one of us won because she's the girl? And how many salty tears can I lick before I risk an overdose? Oh, Lord. I think it's like disqualification on technical grounds for. <laughs> we may be, we may be getting trolled. Bonk, bonk off might not mean what we think it means in British, in the Queen's English. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Um, Sarah, you're great. That's my answer. So that's, that's the, the answer then is double disqualification for failure to spin to win. Something like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Perfect. Yes. All right. That makes total sense. So uh, I, I've been, the next uh, question is it's in the same vein, but it, uh, it ends it's a little bit more serious. Uh, you know, we have a, so this related question um, uh, is sent from Chomp fan uh, Jonas Kurtz, who asks some people online are hating on Chomp and they're also partly hating on you as well. How do you deal with that? <sighs> 
I mean, so I think this is specifically for me. To some extent, you know, I just engage with it when I want to. I don't, I don't always, I mean, I think if I spent all my day in like hate threads or like actually reading my messages on messenger or whatever, then I would be pretty sad um, or just scared. Um, and that sucks. That's, that's really a shame that that's the price of being a woman on the internet. And um, part of it is, is uh, knowing some other builders who go through the same kind of stuff and, and talking to them. Um, part of it is often um, one thing that's inspiring is seeing a fan who's sticking up for something or someone mm -hmm. that I think, oh gosh, I should be sticking up for that person and I just don't have the energy. And there's a fan who's doing it. And that is really, um, really lovely. Um, part of it is having a really good partner myself who is male and who is so great. So thank you, Yasha. Um, yeah, there's, of course. there's, um, I wish that I could fix the, the hateful and threatening aspects of the internet. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's something definitely to be said about, you know, diving in and trying to be a warrior to, that changes the culture yourself, but, but instead like empowering fans to be the catalyst of the change of the culture. I, you know, in, and what you just shared before, I think that makes a lot of sense and ultimately lends the, like lends the most value. And, and I will say I am really privileged, right? Um, I'm female and that's unusual in engineering and also in battle bots, but I'm white. Um, I'm cisgender. Um, I have a, I have a tech job I and mean, it's not like Silicon Valley tech, but I do have a tech job and I'm well paid and I have all these advantages that that lots of people don't have. And the, I think the BattleBots community would be a better and richer place if it was just bigger because uh, people of color felt included, LGBTQ people felt included, um, all sorts of other people who just, we don't have that many of them in the community right now. Like we'd have so many cooler bots. We'd have so many more BattleBots entrants and I have a really good and, and honestly really easy life. And so I can spend a little bit of time trying to push back on uh, some hateful stuff that I see in the community. And, and that's a lot easier for me than for someone who doesn't have all the advantages that I have. And I would like to do that to the extent that I'm able to make it more welcoming for those people. Yeah. And then for just advice for, for fans like myself, how can we be how can we be better fans that make the sport itself and STEM just like more accessible to, uh, you know, to women, to people of color, whereas in, in the past, like engineering is kind of seen as a, as a white male dominated subject. Mm -hmm. uh, it's harder for me to talk to people of color, um, but I would say if you're male, please talk to your male friends um, and just say, hey, like we don't make these kinds of sexist jokes, right? Or, you know, if we see... Um, you know, uh, look up what a microaggression is and, and read a little bit about that and try and become more aware of when that might be happening um, uh, around you if you're in the engineering world. Share your salary. Yeah. Tell, tell, yeah. Your, tell your coworkers who are, um, you know, female or people of color, et cetera, what you're being paid so that they can 
know if they're being um, hugely underpaid. Um, you know, support groups. If 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 you if you do have one of those Silicon Valley um, tech job salaries, support groups that work for um, work against inequality in our society. Um, do, like donate your time to mentoring programs. Um, yeah, that's what I be the be be the person. If if you are in a position of privilege, I think that one of the best things that you can do is being the person who says, Hey man, that's really not cool. Like that's not what we're about. And, and challenges um, a stereotype or a comment instead of having it always have to be um, the person who um, that comment is directed towards. So like, no matter what, if I say, Hey man, like that's a sexist stereotype. That's really not cool. Someone's always going to see me and say oh that woman is just such a feminazi you know but if a man says that i think it it's heard in a different way mm -hmm. and it gets through more yeah and keep it up you're doing great <laughs> don't don't get don't get too sad yourself because i think the the world is moving in a direction of progress and if you're helping with that you're doing something really good in the world yeah, and that's, I think that's the best point to make, you know, um, I think people are kind of waking up to, you know, disparity and, uh, and, and, and topics like privilege. And mm -hmm. I, you know, when you're going through hell, keep going, you know, we'll get there. And it's through, it's through personalities like, like yourself. That's really nice of you to say. Thank you. So I have a question from Nelly the Ellibot tactician and my spirit animal, Rira Granger. <laughs> Asked, okay. Being an icon of women in the sport and for engineers everywhere and a true inspiration to myself and many others, the most important question nice has to be, what's your favorite kind of wheels and why? <laughs> <laughs> Protected wheels. <laughs> um, I don't see why anyone leaves their wheels outside their armor. Uh, it just is like such a failure point. Um, we've always just like the, the very first wheel that Chomp ever used was uh, a Colson, a Colson wheel. Uh, and that was just always what we used. I never actually tried anything else, but I would say a protected wheel. What do you think, Asha? She may be giving us a hard time for having legs, but I'm not sure. British humor is difficult to <laughs> grasp. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, don't, I mean, protected wheels, I'm with you. Wheels that people can't see. The only th if you have legs, show them off, but don't show off your wheels. All right, you heard that. Uh, inedible wheels is the answer. <laughs> All right, so I have a, a question from Stephanie Zunick who asks, uh, does Zoe have any advice for a 13-year-old girl who is very interested in robotics or any advice for the 13-year-old's parents? Uh, this person's daughter is already on a, on their first robotics team and is a, uh, a huge BattleBots fan. That's awesome. Um, you've got it. Keep doing it. I would say there's a book I recommend to everybody um, called Women Don't Ask. It's by Sarah Lashiver and then an, another co-author whose name I forget. I would read that book. I would learn about um, this this thing that happens to a lot of people called imposter syndrome and try and figure out when that's going on in your brain and short circuit it. I would learn about stereotype threat, which is similar, which is sort of if you, 
if you put, say, you know, we all have we all have stereotypes. If you take um, an African American kid and say you're going to take a math test, um, you know, fill out this bubble that says your race, and you know, we're going to put you in the room with a bunch of Asian kids. Um, that that has a negative effect on test scores that you don't see if you don't ask that kid what their race is. Um, and you don't try and like remind people, hey, there's a bad stereotype about you. Uh, you see kids do the same. Uh, so learning about stereotype threat and again, try and identify when that's going on in your brain um, and and short circuit it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, being on your first team is fabulous. Um, I didn't come to engineering till really late, which is sort of weird because actually both of my grandfathers were engineers. So it was sort of odd to me that it was this like career that no one had had like that it kind of had never even risen to my mind so i don't have the experience of being 13 years old and and doing robotics but i think that's really neat really neat all right i have a question from bombshell teammate stephanie sayers farmer who wants to know compare and contrast human uh human parenthood versus robot parenthood Hmm. Robots uh, sit a lot stiller when you turn them off. Actually, I know those <laughs> kids don't have an off switch at all. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's just kids are just more work, 100% more work. But also much cuter. That is very true. Jake Anderson asks, what question do you wish that you got asked more? Oh, man. That's one of these ones where the minute that we get off the podcast, I'm going to think of a good answer. Can I be your sponsor? Ah! That is the answer. Yeah. Can I sponsor your robot for $10,000? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I spend so much darn time looking for sponsors. I'm not, I'm not good at it the way that some people are, but. Why stop at 10000 when you can ask for like 10500 10700 Right. 20000 NASCAR money. Can I sponsor your robot for $10 million? <laughs> I, would, I would get on board with that. All right. So finally, we have a series of deeply philosophical and thought-provoking questions from BattleBot superfan and friend of the pod, Mary Catherine Carr. Okay. Hello, Mary Catherine. Uh, her first question, my husband wonders, has COVID-19 given you more time to work on CHOMP? or has it caused more delays due to manufacturing setbacks? And if Walker Chomp isn't finished, will Wheelie Chomp come in its place? We're cannibalizing Wheelie Chomp in order to build Walker Chomp, so no, almost certainly. Um, no, we've had a lot less time. We, we don't really deal with manufacturing time because we make all of our own parts except for like very off the shelf stuff like, like motors. Um, but it has cut into our time to manufacture and also our team's time. We have a really great team of people. Not everybody on the team wants to be public, but I do want to give a shout out to Demeter, Randy, Evan, Rachel, Matt, Rusty, uh, Dr. Ellen Lackerman, my mother, both of our dads, um, Karina, Neil, Joe, um, and then I also want to give a shout out to the childcare workers who make this possible. But because of COVID-19, not all of those people are necessarily able to be in the shop as much, um, you know, making parts and, and working on the robot. 
Did I answer all the pieces? I think there was a third piece maybe I missed. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned that you were uh, going to scrap Wheelie Chomp. Yeah, yeah. We, we probably will try and put Wheelie Chomp back together in order to have a target. I mean, Chomp, <laughs> Chomp is a good BattleBot stand-in because she's a BattleBot. But, uh, but for now, yeah, we're taking parts out. All right. The next question is, what is your favorite kind of dinosaur? And is there a dino that embodies Chomp to you? I've answered a bunch. Yasha, you take that one. Um, I think my favorite dino dinosaur, I, I got to remember back to my childhood days. I think it was the Ankylosaurus, the one with the awesome club tail. And that might indeed embody Chomp a little bit if you consider the tail like a hammer. But um, probably not that well. Chomp's hammer is more like a scorpion stinger. But I don't know. Let's say Ankylosaurus and uh, the hammer is like the club tail. It is a pretty cool dinosaur, to be fair. I'm, I'm personally invested in this next question. Uh, what keeps you going uh, when the world gets sucky? The world can seem so bleak lately, and I feel we need some mm. good wisdom to help us through all of it. I wish I had a better answer. So, to some extent, it's we are so close on, on Chomp in particular. We should see this through. This is this is valuable. This is worthwhile. We, you know, we want to see the fruits of our labor. Yeah, I dream about Chomp's hammer breaking spinner blades and, you know, that kind of stuff. I think it's important to have novelty in your life, and that that that, that new experiences and new things are a source of happiness. And hobbies are a way that people get that right. So, you know, when you're going to work every day and on the same kind of grind um, during, during COVID, a way to break that in some way is to try and make something or, or do something. All right. If Chomp had a theme song, what would it be? Old Chomps was, I get knocked down, but I get up again. <laughs> Oh God! Someone made yeah. a, an amazing. Someone on Reddit um, made an amazing compilation of Chomp falling over to that song. Uh, someone dig up that thread and, and and find it. It's just so well done. And and thank you. I don't know what new Chomps would be. Something about spiders. Uh, you have to yeah. You have to watch it perform a little bit before you can really accurately give a thing like Chomp a theme, a song. theme song. So after after the season, we'll have to get back to you on that. All right, the next question from Mary is, Zoe, since you're pretty much a hero to many ladies in the sport, oh, what gosh. would your superhero name be, and what would your related superpower be? Oh, man, that's very nice of her. Uh, thank you. Um, I mean, this could go so many directions, right? You could go with, like, the making the world a better place. You could go with, like, the trolling superpower. Uh, or the anti-troll superpower. Cool. Pick um, stop time. Stop time is the best. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I get a little <laughs> extra so sleep much, in the mornings. You can do so much stuff while time is stopped. That's a good point. You can do All the right. trolling. You can, do, you can steal the money. I need a good I'm name. Gonna... You're, the, you're the nicknamer. What's my superhero name? Oh, man. That one Maybe will take some time. Z. If, if, if you are listening to this podcast on um, and you found the link via social media, put in the comments what you think my superhero stop time name should be. 
All right, the next question for Mary is, when can we get a photo of the littlest member of Team Chomp riding Chomp? <laughs> that sounds very dangerous. It does. This, is, this has been discussed. She already rides carts in the shops, so it might not be a lot more dangerous. Yeah. Uh, after much testing, I think we're going to make a chair. Uh, Chomp should be able to carry like a full adult's weight, so uh, people are already requesting rides. We just have to give the little one a special... The little one will need to be strapped in. The so problem that is that she'll just want to climb all over it. Yeah. Right, yeah, into the legs, yeah, which are yeah. brutal pinch points. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so a this good, is in the works, question. but there's no definite schedule. All right, the next question for Mary is, will Walker Chomp have a new name? If so, may I suggest Mama Chomp or Mega Chomp? <laughs> and since I feel Chomp's favorite cocktail should be the tears of her haters, what is her <laughs> favorite food? Mary, this is a two-part question. <laughs> um. It definitely is the tears of her haters. Uh, I think the food type would probably just be salt, right? Salt um, and vinegar oh. potato chips. Salt and vinegar, yeah. Um, no, we didn't decide. We, we thought a lot about giving Chomp a new name. Um, but it's there's so much branding involved in it. And just like we already have the Twitter and we already have the Facebook and people know Chomp. Um, and, and I do want to, I think that we got close with our, our first, hammer chomp but i do want to see that um that hammer kind of redeemed we designed that hammer to run at like 300 to 400 psi and just be insane and it turned out that with our own self weight and we weren't ever able to do a hold down system that would increase our effective weight we were never really able to swing that hammer at more than i think that we were like between like 60 and 100 psi so it, so I, I want to see, like, I want to have Chomp live up to her potential and, and, and not let her down by switching to some other robot before she's, like, really mature and, and strong and good. Yeah. Uh, no one asked about how powerful the new hammer is, but the new hammer design is uh, ambitious. It's like... 9x what we designed old chomp to be or no yeah. it's it's like it's about 5x, old chomp. yeah it's it's 5x what we designed old chomp to be but it's going to be like 10x what we actually run it at if we can Ooh. if we can run it at, at our full pressure that's a that's a spicy little fact so i had to wrap up with is there anything yeah. else you can tell us about it um what else is interesting about it i mean it's for for pneumatic hammer nerds it's a different you know original uh Wheeled Chomp had a had a crank hammer system, yeah, which was interesting, and in that it could swing the hammer all the way around the robot. We gave up on that, uh, and we put the hammer up in a turret, which is awkward in some ways, but also has some advantages. Um, it it has two cylinders uh, and two chains. Uh, one pulls the hammer while it's you know going forward, and one pulls the hammer back while it's retracting. So it's all pneumatic, unlike. Old Chomp, which had uh, some electrical mechanism electrical in there retract. to retract. So it's all pneumatic. Uh, it's a ludicrously large displacement uh, cylinder, like 5X Old Chomp, which is, which you'll you'll see when you see the turret. It's, it's as big it's as so a, long. You know, it's it's giant. as big as a normal robot by itself. It's like a robot on top it's, of a robot. It's bigger than, it's twice the length of like a lot of these small like birds. So really the hope big. is that the, the, the hope is that the mass, the 500 pound mass and the large diameter will let us actually swing the hammer without this thing just flipping over. Oh, we have a, um, we're going to have a slightly new logo though. 
you know, not having a new name. Um, we're going to have a slightly new logo designed by my Uncle Roger. Thank you, Uncle Roger. How soon do we get to see that? Oh, that's a good question. Once Uncle Roger gets paid, I'm assuming. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> There'll be t-shirts. Um, it'll it'll be a good time. We'll see. Pr probably around the time if if they ever film this thing, um, then then you know we'll we'll roll t-shirts out around the time that we get our own t-shirts. Well, the second you guys get those in, you let us know. We would love to share them, and uh, of course, I'm sure that we'll we'll each be happy to uh, to sport them around our our COVID bubbles. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they won't get the most exposure, but that's probably the right thing for, for health and safety. <laughs> I wanted to, to thank both of you so much for, for coming on the show with us today. It's been such a great, you know, tour through, you know, everything that you're doing with Chomp and, and the, and the 10,000 year clock and talking about the, you know, the culture of the sport, we really covered a lot of ground. Um, it's been, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on and we can't wait to see Chomp in the battle box soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I do just want to say one one last time, this design would not be possible for us. I mean, this is this is a a pricey robot, but um, it wouldn't be possible at all without the sponsorship of Enfield Technologies that makes those S two cylinder positioning systems, the the servo pneumatic systems that actuate all the legs. So if you are in a position to look at any kind of pneumatics, um, please head over to Enfield's website and give them a look. They've been so friendly and lovely um, and they're enabling walking chomp. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we travel on over to Silicon Valley, where engineers and Edge Innovations are building a robotic dolphin, which will cost nearly $21 million each and is virtually indistinguishable from the real thing. The designers worked on an earlier project at the Walt Disney Company to build underwater animatronic animals capable of being piloted by remote control. Today, they're developing the technology for a Chinese aquarium that wants to replace all of its big underwater attractions, which could include sharks and whales, with robots. I, uh, I, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I read this right before the beginning of the recording of our podcast. But did you know that this robotic dolphin is going to be competing in BattleBots 2020? Really? Yes. It's, uh, it's a flipper. <laughs> we should have seen that coming from a million miles away and yet you still surprised all of us well done I, I didn't see it i didn't see it coming but i knew as i was reading through that uh dialogue i could just see something brewing on chris's face and i knew that we were in for in for something as soon as i stopped talking so there there we have it well i mean if I didn't say a really good joke, what would be the porpoise? <laughs> um, yeah, what, what do you guys think about this, all things considered? Uh, so I was reading the articles around this robotic dolphin and the other robotic creatures, these kind of large 
very expensive, very delicate, beautiful animals, orcas and whales and sharks and dolphins. And the interesting thing is you're going to be able to, so like from far away, even close up, you can't tell that it's not alive. Um, like it's pretty, pretty remarkable. And they're going to be able to build cooler exhibits um, because they won't have to plan anymore for organic animals, right? So you'll be able to get a pod of dolphins swimming in a, um, like a swimming pool at a mall, you know, or like a mall fountain or something like that. You know, um, you'll be able to see sharks um, inside of tiny little aquariums inside of retail stores, perhaps, you know, like um, huge whales just like on display, you can swim with them, you know, like that, it really opens up some some cool ideas for the aquarium of the future. And really, at this point, there's no porpoise, as Chris, I suppose, would say, in um, in keeping these these large animals, you know, in captivity, especially when we have better alternatives that are even cheaper in the in the long run. I uh, I hope that they branch out and begin making like a, a robotic octopus because those are my favorite animals and I would love to have one as a pet. However, they make awful pets because they're so smart and they have such a you know um, a high functioning brain that unless you literally spend hours a day like doing like puzzles with them and like brain activities they will literally do anything that they can to get out of your tank and then commit suicide but if you had a robotic octopus you would not have to worry about that and you could have a sweet 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 octopus pet um all right so i want to first comment on the reality of this situation (laughs) uh robotic octopus sounds amazing from an aquarium standpoint, um, but terrifying from any science fiction fan ever standpoint. <laughs> Octopi or octopuses, which by the way, both are grammatically correct, which is totally messed up. I know, it's true. Um, are terrifying creatures in and of themselves. They're, they can fit through any hole that's the same size as their beak. Yes. They have a beak, which is weird. And they have been known to kill sharks when they're in captivity. They, have you guys ever seen that video of like the, the giant uh, Pacific octopus killing that shark in its tank? In, no. like, what yeah, corners of YouTube do you go to, Kyle? I go to a lot. I go to a lot of, I, I like octopus videos. Uh, I have favorite octopus videos. Um, so I will say I, from, a, from a reality standpoint, robotic animals that are going to be on display in, in aquariums is a wonderful idea. Obviously, you know, what we've learned over the past few years from documentaries like Blackfish, you know, holding these large animals in captivity, especially orcas and or dolphins, you know, these very intelligent cephalopods um, is just morally reprehensible. But at the same time, I think the idea of a robotic dolphin uprising is just so scary, just (laughs) so scary. And I just don't like the fact that we've invested any money or time into that technology. Do you know? Do you know precisely how you get an octopus to laugh? No, no. How? You tickle them. I thought you guys would remember this. What? Yeah, you tickle them. Well, approximately ten tickles. 
Oh, come on! Oh, just when you think Chris is gonna bomb, he just turns it around. <laughs> That's about it for us today. We'll be back in your feed next Wednesday with another mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. 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 <laughs>